0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast for Wednesday, September 23rd, 2020. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Christine's Christine's (laughs) laughing because we can see each other on this kind of Zoomy screen, and Abe was... It was just about to take a big sip of coffee since I don't have a pattern since <laughs> I don't have a pattern for who i call who who whom I introduce first. You
1: just gotta be on your toes <laughs> totally totally caught me off guard you're like that like a like, take a dangerous big sip second of spot yes
0: yeah. <laughs> uh okay so uh so the uh it appears that the uh Supreme Court nomination is, uh, uh, you know, is uh, gaining momentum. A uh, story just out from Bloomberg says that uh, there will be hearings beginning October 12th and a final vote on October 26th, um, which is cutting it pretty close if you think about it. That is to say that if anything were to happen that would uh, throw a wrench into the proceedings you know, which is what happened with Kavanaugh, right? They're, they had to delay it for a week. Uh, the, the, the time will not permit a delay. Um, so this really will have to be, a, a, you know, a muscling through process. Um, and, of course, a muscling through process that happens with a week to go in the election, uh, if it appears to be muscled through, and if, you know, some allegation that is, you know, not entirely science fictional were to come up and uh, Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham, nonetheless, like push this uh, nomination through the possibility of igniting a a furor and, you know, the classic uh, uh, wine ladies that uh, Noah was talking about yesterday
2: uh, having been ignited. Wine moms, not wine ladies. Wine ladies are a defined uh, constituency, totally demographic or totally democratic. They are not persuadable. Wine moms? moms. Okay.
0: A few. Anyway, so if the wine moms, you know, get have their buttons pushed uh in the wrong way, you could then really have, you know, you could have a sort of last minute rush to the polls for the other side and whatever. So it's a it's it it's not it's not without its its risks and uh my view is worth the risk, but it's fair to say that You know, this is not, this is not a, this is still a complicated political play, I would say. So,
2: is it not to the benefit of Republicans to change the subject from those that have really frustrated Republican messaging efforts over the course of this year? The pandemic, notably uh, economic, persistent economic malaise, um... And, uh, you know, racial tensions um, to the with the exclusion of violence around them, just generally racial rapprochement, um, changing the subject and going pr- completely procedural towards a Supreme Court fight. You now, that'll energize the Democratic base, perhaps even more than it'll energize the Republican base. But it also takes all those other issues, you know, kind of out of the news. At a pretty critical time.
3: Well, and that I think we're I think that's a very important point and it it does help Republicans and doesn't help the Biden campaign because, you know, Biden is already I mean, he hasn't been a very rapid response. That's not their style. And and their style so far has been pretty effective in taking their time to message stuff. But, you know, both he and Kamala Harris yesterday had shouted out questions from a press who's generally extremely friendly towards them about their views on court packing, for example, about their views on the nomination. So they're going to there's no way that the press can not question them about this nomination. And in that sense, if they're not nimble and, and good on their messaging that is something that people are going to be thinking about. Um, they want to stick to COVID. That's, they want to talk about COVID all the time. Uh, and the media continues to help them. For example, citing a recent Trump rally and saying, this is a super spreader event. How awful. Meanwhile, the exact same day, you know, there's a mass gathering of people outside the Supreme Court and it's, oh, how wonderful. Look at this commemoration of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's life. So they're going to keep helping them on the COVID score, but they can't really help them on this one. Not, not quite yet, if they won't answer the questions. Okay, so... Yeah, I mean,
0: I think it, it does change the subject to a certain degree, although if it changes the subject to, uh, let's just say, even though it, it may not, I, I think we've now argued pretty effectively that it, this is not the case, but that it changes the subject to abuse of power, Republican Trumpian abuse of power, then it isn't really a change of subject necessarily, right? Because it then that if it is framed in the right way or framed in the way that would be helpful to to Biden, this gets back to the, we just got to end this period. This period's got to end like nothing normal ever happens here. Everything is crazy. They do everything in this crazy way that is abusive of power. Um, Again, the whole question here is what makes people move on the margins 90% Ninety percent of people have their minds made up according to every poll that we are now seeing ninety percent ninety two percent of people have their minds made up that's that's a that's an almost unprecedented number so you're really talking about seven eight percent unless there is some massive hidden vote that we we don't know about um, and then the question there is the classic thing is that if you take that number you um, in a, in a more conventional election, you would probably distribute it fairly evenly. Like you would say the late deciders are probably break pretty much evenly unless something happens, right? And the, and the late deciders in 2016 broke for Trump, like apparently a three to one, but that could have been Comey related. Or something like that. Like it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily that they just decided they wanted Trump, that some, that this one thing happened that really did push them um, into the Trump camp.
3: Here's, here's one story that, that popped up, I think yesterday or today in Politico that I think, uh, undecided voters should be aware of. And if the Trump campaign knew what it's doing, it would emphasize this message, not in the crazy, he's a socialist way, but in the, here's your future in a Biden administration way. The revolving door project gave, you know, they did a, Politico did a lengthy study of how the revolving door project, which works on presidential transitions from the left, had understood that it had an epic failure when Obama came into power and it did not pack enough progressive folks into that administration because Obama was relying on Clinton era, more, you know, centrist uh, uh, neoliberals. Um, and in this for this election, they're prepared. They've been laying the groundwork for years and and they go on the record saying, look, we want we want this incoming administration to look more like a Warren or Sanders administration would have looked rather than what the Obama administration looked. And they go through in detail all the many appointments, all the sort of bureaucratic uh, areas in which they could pursue much more progressive policies than the Biden campaign has been saying it's comfortable with. So that message far more than Biden's, you know, stalking horse for socialism. No, he's just going to be an empty shell filled by progressivism. That message could turn some of the the wine moms are a little concerned about, you know, the extreme policy shifts. And it's very clear that his the progressive wing in the Democratic Party has no intention of rolling over just because Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren dropped out of the race.
2: My operating assumption is if you're undecided at this point, you're not ideological. You you don't care about any of that. You don't follow it. You don't really even understand it. Um, You vote for people and... People hate Donald Trump. They just don't like him, and, and Joe Biden does not have that problem. Where this, where, where the margins matter to me, is in center races, um, where you actually have some Republicans really on the bubble, and the the, the defining, you know, we could be talking about a fifty fifty Senate with Kamala Harris casting the Kamala Harris casting the deciding vote and becoming the world's biggest star for the next five years if Joni Ernst doesn't get another point in the polls. You know, and that's that's really where the the battle lines are drawn for me. I mean, I I know the presidential race isn't decided yet, but if you take the polls at face value, it's not a competitive race.
1: I'm still pushing my idea that um, that the that the court nominee helps Trump in that it brings around lifelong conservatives who can't stand Trump personally were willing to sit it out, but now recognize um, the gravity of uh, of getting another judge. And I, I think on balance, that should outweigh um, the undecideds who are getting, who up, up to this point undecideds who are were, who were getting the, now getting the story that this is a, a huge abuse of power. Because as far as Trumpian abuses of power goes, this is not, in fact, this is not An abuse of power so this so who is this going to tip at this late in the game in that direction i think there's a logical inconsistency there a because if you're
0: right that there is this number of people and a vote takes place on october 26th and the new supreme court justice is confirmed what do you need trump for after that if you don't like him you're going to reward well, that, him. I mean I guess right. maybe you could say, well, now I feel good about him so I'm going to vote for a second term because basically the court then ends up with a 6 to 3 conservative majority and that that's going to be the that's going to be sort of like the guardrail that prevents, you know, the the uh, the nope. a creation of a European socialist state or something like that and then you can then you can say goodbye to Trump. I don't know. I mean if, if there's a that's- real
1: no, that's definitely a new wrinkle which is why I, I always thought it would have been better for for Trump if if the actual vote was was then held after the election right
0: although fair enough so I don't know that those people exist there's a there a cup there's a bizarre piece of information in Tom Edsel's piece today in the New York Times I want to read to you guys Um uh, Ed Solt has been writing invaluable weekly commentaries on the election, on race, on all sorts of things. Just, uh, you know, uh, really some of the best writing in newspapers on politics and p- political culture out there. And uh, he gets a an email from a Democrat... I'm sorry, I'm looking for this here. Okay, An unnamed uh, a democratic, democratic strategist, strategist right? Uh, Analyze the implications of the most recent voter registration trends for me. And here's what here's what he says: in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, this democratic strategist said, overall, quote, registration is up by six points through August compared to the 2016 cycle, but net Democratic registrations are down by 38 percent. That's about 150,000 fewer additional Democrats than were added in 2016. In addition, he continued, registration among whites without college degrees, quote, is up by 46%, while registration by people of color is up by only 4%. That gap is made more stark when you realize that over the last four years, the white non college population has increased by only 1% in these states, while the number of people of color increased by 13%. This pattern was more pronounced in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin than it was in Michigan. Now, this is a kind of hard thing. It's not that there are 46% fewer Democrats registered because Democratic registration, you know, you don't have to register for every election, and Democrats did a fantastic registration job in 2018 and may have like flooded the zone and Right and and uh, and and gone totally hog wild in 2018, and therefore don't have that many people to register in 2020 in the same way, except people who turn 18 or something like that. Whereas the white working class, as we know, are white non-college people, um, really don't vote. So uh, their numbers can be up uh, with that, you know, in percentage terms, without really being all that far up in numerical terms. However. So, um, it's still a fact if this is right i mean it's weird cuz i haven't seen anything uh that uh that 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 parallels this piece of information it's the only time i've heard this but if it's correct you have a you have an enthusiasm gap is what was what that would say that is that is driving f- uh previous non-voters to the polls or something like that
2: And that was the conclusion of this Democratic strategist that it cannot, by definition, it cannot be measured in polls. And so we might be talking about a very, uh, the the hidden white vote that Sean Trende talked about in 2013. And and, uh, he talks about that too. But the most interesting element of that column that um, I thought was pretty foreboding for Democrats is when they talk about the Hispanic vote. We've been talking about the softness of the Hispanic vote for Joe Biden for some time, which which has been measured in public opinion surveys. And this strategist goes on to talk about how Democrats have a terrible misconception of Hispanics in this country. They lump them together as a Latino vote, they categorize them as people of color, they reject their efforts to assimilate into American society. And this is all completely dissociated with actual Hispanics and actual Hispanic voters. And it sort of dovetails with something that I, I'm writing about now, and we saw in NBC News yesterday this notion that Kamala Harris and Joe Biden will usher in this new era of intersectionality. And intersectionality as a governing ethos, as a system of, of societal organization, is blinds you deliberately to uh, these distinctions and creates this um, amorphous, nebulous category called people of color. Um, when I was speaking with a liberal academic... Uh, last weekend who took real issue with this con- concept of people of color as being um, something that uh, leads you to a lot of misconceptions about how race works in this country and uh, blurs the distinctions between the experiences of some races in this country and black Americans, which their experience is completely sui generis and undermines their experience. So he had a lot of problems with this, but as a political eth, as an organizing philosophy, it, it prevents you from having a clear picture of the electorate and targeting your messages in the most effective way, because you don't see targeting as being particularly effective. If you're an intersectional theorist, uh, you know, all conflict in a Marxian way, all conflict is associated with stems from identity and there are no distinctions. There's no distinct identity conflict, no distinct struggle against prejudice in this country. They are all overlapping, intersecting, Uh, related in some fashion or form and this is perceived to be enlightened but as a political strategy it's counterproductive
0: okay so the other thing that happened in in relation to this is is uh, this morning Trump got the best polling news that he's gotten in I don't know easily a month if not longer in the form of a Washington Post ABC poll of Florida and Arizona that shows him in the lead in Florida, fifty one forty seven, which is the first serious lead that he has shown in a poll in Florida in uh, forever. And even more striking, I think, a lead in Arizona by a point forty nine forty eight. This is a state where Biden, uh, according to the last RCP average, I think, was up close to nine or something like that um, so the either these polls are outliers or they are showing as as uh, Aaron Blake of ABC said that uh, Republicans are coming home in Florida uh, and therefore Trump's numbers are solidifying and improving and uh, though they though they say that they did not have enough Latino Hispanic voters in these polls to be statistically, Significant, which is makes raises the question of why exactly they are reporting on this, but nonetheless, they do that. Um, Biden really is uncommonly weak. Uh, hold on, let me find these numbers. I'm sorry, I should have had these to hand. In Arizona, Biden leads Trump among Latinos 61 to 34. Uh, free four years ago, Clinton carried the Latino vote by 61 to 31. So Trump is doing a little better. In Florida, the Latino vote splits 52-39, okay, uh, which was 62-35 in 2016. Now, the poll does say they don't have enough Latino voters to really report this that they're reporting. But if this is generally, this is generally congruent with what other polls are finding, which is that Trump is marginally... Uh, better among Latinos than he was in 2016, when he, like Romney, uh, got about 29% of the Latino vote. Uh, And, but that Biden is weaker. Now, again, the coming home process could take place just as it is with Trump, but that if Biden's a little weak, he'll, you know, in the end, people will generally come back to where they would have gone anyway. Um, But so if you take this, non-voters registering to vote and therefore uh the white working class numbers are up and the and the theoretical biden voter numbers are are down um or not as high as they should be or whatever uh and then you take this number uh trump may be showing unexpected strength you know at this point which is where are we six weeks five and a half weeks i don't know
3: Uh, So I have a question, though, with the will Hispanic voters come home to Biden because they generally tend to vote Democratic. I mean, there there's there are a couple of distinctions about this election, one of which is that the Biden campaign and has tethered itself very significantly to the whole Black Lives Matter sort of era of summer protest. And every time Biden is asked about, you know, making a symbolic appointment or, you know, from choosing his running mate to selecting a Supreme Court justice, he always says, I'm going to choose a black woman. And I wonder how Hispanic voters feel about the very close um, uh, identification of the Biden campaign with Black Lives Matter and, you know, the constant focus on one aspect of race relations in this country, because we know it's ironic because... The folks who, who uh, you know, want to make everything about race and identity often talk about how the lived experience of individuals should, you know, surmount any sort of statistical evidence or whatnot. But what you see in the lived experience of a lot of Hispanic voters um, in America, there was an interesting case in, over the summer in Louisville where a Black Lives Matter protest was threatening to destroy a Hispanic business because they claimed that this business is racist, it wouldn't put up, it wouldn't exceed to the demands of Black Lives Matter activists who wanted them to post something in their window saying they you know, paid obeisance to Black Lives Matter. This Hispanic business owner was like, I'm not going to do that. And here's why. And he, he actually pushed back very heavily on that message. But it was a perfect microcosm of something that I think goes on intra-racially all the time in this country which is you know hispanic people forget that the the hispanic percentage is the going to be the largest minority pretty soon if not already in this country right you know the and that is a very very diverse community and as long as the biden uh, campaign treats it as homogenous it's it is i think to noah's point being rather condescending
2: Oh, we've talked about this earlier. Uh, racial categories are nebulous and fluid, and uh, they they do not adhere to these strict the categorization that, um, for example, philosophies like intersectionality put them in. And the closer you get from being a minority to a majority, the more diverse you become, right. just by virtue of necessity, because you're just a broader category. Uh, and we talked about this you know, in 2014. New York Times' Nate Cohen observed that as Hispanics become more integrated into American society and more assimilated with American society, they they stop identifying as Hispanic and begin right. identifying which, as white. Which
0: speaks to the wisdom or the political wisdom or the Machiavellian wisdom of the Biden campaign in focusing so relentlessly on the black vote and particularly the black female vote, because that is a distinct vote. And we know from 2008 and 2012 that if you can in, you know, generate more than 90% or 95% of that vote, basically you can, uh, b- the Biden theory of the case, I believe, not that I've read this, is if they can just get the voters out in Detroit, Philadelphia, and Milwaukee who didn't go to the polls in 2016 for Hillary but had gone to the polls in 2012 for Obama. Forget 2008, which was a whole other, you know, massive turnout thing. They win in a walk. So they're so saying, you know, black 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 has a very distinct political gain whereas the diversity and co- complexity of the Hispanic community, which isn't a community at all, I mean, I don't know what it means to say, you know, Jews, uh, a Sephardic Jew and an Ashkenazic Jew, right? They're still, they're both Jews. A Jew from, you know, a Jew whose uh, parents, or grandparents lived in North Africa or in, or in Arab countries is a Jew the same as a Jew whose parents lived in the Pale of Settlement. But a Cuban is not the same as a Mexican. I mean, they're, they they speak a common language and they are largely both Catholic, but they are not, they are not demographically similar. They are not culturally similar, except again, in the larger Catholic and Spanish speaking sense. And this notion that you can somehow get it one with both, uh, is belied not only by Nate Cohn's very interesting, you know, uh, study of the <laughs> Caucasification of them, but also on the fact that they just, they, they have d- different cultural uh, backgrounds and histories and connections to their, to their homelands and all of that.
1: So then can we just revisit Re- Biden's playing uh, the, the, Puerto Rican pop hit on his phone. Then, in light of this conversation, I yes, yes, the, the
3: Zito moment. One of yes, Esposito. Yes,
1: <laughs> I mean, you know, there was this question about whether or not a whether pandering works, and b whether that was good or bad pandering. Um, I I think it was. I still think it was um, terrible. Specifically, in light of what we're talking about, I mean, it 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 reduced the the whole the all the rich and varied experience that you're talking about into um this one pop song and it was it is so lazy so so sort of um overtly lazy in in just doing that that i i, I think it was I emblematic agree. of 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 his problem i think it was
2: terrible pandering but i would submit that the biden campaign's focus on a lot of this uh BLM moment and BLM messaging is not just to drive out urban turnout, though that's part of it, but it's aimed at the suburbs. Um, White, educated, affluent voters hate racial conflict and really want to be on the side of racial rapprochement. And they're doing really well in the suburbs. The suburbs are going to win the White House for Biden if he wins the White House. And those are the people who respond to these messages too. And they're more likely to vote I don't so think might- the
0: suburbs are good, or how about Biden's going to win?
2: I genuinely don't. I mean, again, we'll know.
0: This is all, you know, errant speculation. Trump won because turnout uh, declined in three cities. I mean, just basically the truth of it Detroit, Milwaukee, and Philadelphia turnout, you know. Largely African-American cities or or disproportionately African-American cities turnout declined and Trump won by 20,000 votes in each state. So that was the whole point about Trump's the danger to Trump from the election until now, which is that Democrats know exactly where they have to go to get the votes to to uh, contest his advantage. He doesn't know where to go to contest their advantage because the map is too complicated for him in this but they know where to go and their theory of the case may be disproven but and it may be that of course the suburban vote is important but democrats have already proven that they that they can get it cuz they got it in 2018
2: but not um, in 2016 trump well, won the suburbs 49 to 45 in 2016. Uh-huh. And that that's the that's what flipped in 2018.
0: Right. But I'm just saying so so it's not clear that he needs to that Biden needs to shore up the suburbs since they went I don't know wildly disproportionately for Democrats. I mean, remember the 2018 aggregate vote was 62 million for the Democrats and 53 million for the Republicans. That is a huge advantage I mean that's you know you know that's uh, seven point8 points I don't know what it is and all of that was in the suburbs and whether that's the place he needs to go anyway I, I, I again, I think they know what they're doing. Um, maybe they don't and maybe or maybe they're just making the the best out of what they have. I thought it was striking that he went with the I'm gonna point a black woman to the Supreme Court line. After having picked Kamala Harris, like you would think, okay, in his most important pick, he went with a black woman to say went with a black woman. Why did he have to do it again? Because either he really believes it or because uh, he is real. They are just trying to hammer this point home he thinks that the black vote is going to win him the presidency if he can turn it out in the right way. I don't know how else to look at it. I mean, it's, it's not done, you know, uh, you have to assume that all of these kinds of things are being done with an eye toward just getting those votes. Like if you could just flip those three cities, you know, or, you know, or or generate turnout in those three cities. And by the way, if he can do that, this, uh, this, Tom Edsel detail about the about the uh, large increase in the white working class registrations for voting um, will be neutralized. I mean, I don't know. There apparently, I think there were. It was thought there were maybe two hundred thousand missing votes in 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 uh, Philadelphia. Some really startlingly large number of people who had turned out to vote for Obama, who did not turn out to vote for Hillary. That's a, just a giant, you know, massive, uh, material there that if, you know, and since, since it, it had already, those people had already voted, getting them back to the polls shouldn't be that hard. It's getting people who have never voted to vote. That's hard. Anyway, uh, But nonetheless, Trump has good news here. I mean, uh, it's not that good news that he wins Florida and Arizona, because he won Florida and Arizona before. Obviously, if he loses Florida and Arizona, the game is over. I mean, if he loses both of them. If he loses Florida, the game is largely over anyway. But if, uh, uh, you know, unless he wins everything else but loses Florida, he can still win. But I think Florida's 29 electoral votes, and he... He got 306 last time, uh, so that's 36. So he's basically like pretty close to being done if Florida goes the other way.
3: Can I can I float a theory based on uh, what you were just saying, John, about uh, black voters? Which is to, to bring together what you're arguing about the turnout issue to what Noah was saying about the suburban uh, voters as well. You could argue Biden's doing both, right? Because all, a lot of his rhetoric about who he would select and who he would put in power is is straight out of the Ibram Abram X. Kendi anti-racism playbook, right? It's not enough anymore to just say, you know, I'm colorblind. If you're not anti-racist, then you're racist. The message he often sends when he talks about why he wants to select, for example, Kamala Harris or a, a black woman to the Supreme Court, he he is signaling using a lot of the the now very popular among white liberal progressives, uh, the anti-racist rhetoric. So in a weird way, he's pandering to his voting base that he needs to turn out at the same time that he's pandering in this new anti-racist way of signaling to just those voters that Noah was describing, the progressive liberal wine moms who who want to feel anti-racist, even as they don't understand what that even means in practice.
0: You know, it's fascinating because as a practical matter, uh, the anti-racist, um, the result of anti-racism is astoundingly close or the the hope for result of anti-racism is astoundingly close to what... Uh, people had to be educated out of, I thought, you know, sort of like in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, which is tokenism, that it's like, how do you prove that you're anti-racist? Well, you hire, you put a black person in this job, you put a black person in that job, you put a black person in the other job, you, you, you do this so that you can then say, you see, uh, uh, we are not just uh, not racist, we are anti-racist because we are choosing people on the basis of their color and putting them in positions in visible positions so that the world will learn how it is that things should be properly constituted and um and it, i i don't know i don't know exactly what to make of it but of course tokenism was thought to be unbelievably insulting and fundamentally racist in its own application that people were being chosen for jobs to reflect their color and so that they could represent their community at large rather than through their own uh, labors. And you either have to believe, again, that individual achievement and merit and all that are a myth and that basically everybody only gets their job because they are re- representing somebody else, which is really, I think, the central key idea or insight of or not lack of insight or anti-insight of intersectionality and all that, that basically white people pick white people for jobs because they're thinking white and they they want white people to do things. Um, and so there, that's what structural racism is, is that without even knowing it, they're, they're, they're racially conscious in the favor of their own race. And so, They need to be racially conscious in favor of somebody else's race in order to counteract the racism that causes them to be racist in favor of their own race. And, you know, uh, I guess the interesting thing is that for the elites who sort of drive this opinion leader, you know, the opinion leaders, uh, if they're going to turn in favor of tokenism, who's going to argue against it?
3: Well, no one. And and look, our friends at the Free Beacon just did a really wonderful uh, investigation of where all the hundreds of thousands of dollars of grant money that was given to Kendi to study, to do actual scholarly research on this question of anti-racism at American University, before he then decamped to his new center, at Boston University, which has now been funded to the tune of, I think, $10 million by Twitter's Jack Dorsey. They haven't actually done the scholarly research. So, so this is literally a theory without any sort of study of its, of its, uh, truth, of its, uh, effectiveness when it's put into practical application. And yet, as we know, it's, it's now in schools. It's being, you know, promoted by, uh, federal and state governments. So, so this idea that there's some sort of, I mean, I would have a lot more uh, respect and sympathy for Kendi's argument if it was backed up by any sort of scholarly evidence. It is not. It's pure ideology. Um, and it's being funded by exactly the people who should be skeptical of, of this sort of thing infecting the way that their businesses are run and our schools are, are run as well. Um, but it's it is it has the it has the tone and the feel of a of a kind of spiritual quest really for the people who embrace it, and I think that satisfies a, a real hunger right now um, by a lot of people, including the wine moms, to to feel like they're doing something mean of meaningful at a time when it's difficult to feel that way in your everyday life. So I think this is
1: a challenge. But just to bring it back to uh, Biden, as as Christine, you were um, initially linking it. I think this is a challenge for Biden in that his core message is about getting back to a state of normal, but that the the version of normal that that people are interested seem interested in getting back to is not really a state of normal. It's not really this the ordinary pre Trump state of normal, right? This this it's this hoped for new dispensation, um, and there so there's a kind of Focus problem there, I think, on Biden's fundamental message that I don't know is his fault, but it's it's but it's been there the whole time that you know we we, we want things you know sort of calm and um, understandable. Yet at the same time, we we have to um, we're involved with um, satisfying some elements of a radical vision here that that that's that will be woven into what is now supposedly normal. I
0: think you need a certain level of political and ideological consciousness to make that connection. That that's the problem. Unless you work at a workplace where they are forcing you to have, um, you know, a lemon session, or you know, where you have to confess your faults and all that, which is certainly happening in the
1: a lot upper of people do. Classes. Yeah.
0: But, uh, but, you know, maybe not in the, you know, maybe I not. don't know. These
3: book clubs are reading Kendi and Robin yeah. D'Angelo. I mean, they, and, and those are yeah. not people who might, uh, those are people who don't otherwise engage politically necessarily, but right. culturally, it's, it's infecting. I mean, we were talking beforehand about some of the sort of like the Time 100 list and culturally, this, this message is getting through as well. And if, If those voters hear in Biden's rhetoric and see in his behavior a a signal of that thing that's been making them feel like they're not racist, I think that can be a weirdly, it's not something you can poll necessarily, it's a qualitative Thing not a quantitative thing. I, I do th- I I know people like this. I should say I have friends who have you know been transformed by this vision of anti racism. These are smart, intelligent people, but they do feel it's finally given them a sense of purpose about something that's really complicated and difficult to fix. If that makes but,
0: sense. But so so I'm I'm arguing I'm sort of, sort of getting at the obverse, which is will the radicalism of this message uh, work in Trump's favor? and what i'm saying is you you kind of have to have direct personal experience i think of yeah the it's too late yeah it'll, it'll, it'll of the consequences hit them later. of it yeah, yeah it exactly. may hit them later when yeah. it's too late that um <clears throat> and that you really need to sort of understand or see the world through a certain type of ideological prism to to make the connection between in bad ideas or ideas that may really come bother you later, uh, and and a, and a political candidate who is paying implicit obeisance to those ideas. But you sort of have to understand the provenance of those ideas before you can understand what Biden is up to and about. I mean, I think we're all very worried about this. And, you know, we're all having this experience. My Kids' schools are, you know, engaging in anti-racism education, and the parent groups at the schools are having book clubs to read Ibram X. Uh, Kendi, and uh, um, and you know, I want to pull my hair out uh, by by the tufts. Um, but we're, we live we we live where we live and how we live, and you know, the, there's there's fortunately, you know, I have an outlet to fight over this and contest it and try to turn it backwards. But a lot of other people in, in our ambit, Christine, don't, obviously, and that's not a it's not any activity that they get. And so it's too early for there to be the silent majority revolt against the ibram kendization of America. But it won't be too early after a Biden victory in 2022-2023.
2: When it comes to everybody's this, neighborhood. The greatest trick this ideology <coughs> has played, and perhaps its most tenuous condition right now, is the notion that this extremely culturally dominant ethos is somehow countercultural, that it's some sort of a rebellion against existing thought. I can't tell you how often I'm confronted by people who, um, believe in this ethos and these are the same people who you know celebrate the fact that there are 10 million dollar founded uh, university schools that, that teach this and that you know every every brand that you purchase has to declare its affinity for these you know relationships that accuse me of being you know the voice for the powerful here uh, if when I get to occupy a lavishly funded charity university for social justice skepticism <laughs> then I will get to say that I'm, I'm the countercultural guy. Um, but that can't last, right? At a certain point, everybody's going to look around and say, "Wow, every authority figure in my life, every teacher, every principal, every employer, every company is a, is affiliated in some sense with as has has genuflected at the altar of this idea." But that's and like the that's, that doesn't that will that will yield itself a, a backlash from right. intergenerational tensions.
0: But that's like the where you got Trump argument. I mean, and, and the the serious where you got, this is where you got Trump argument, which is you spend 40 years talking about identity politics, and then you generate a circumstance in which a certain population of white people vote as an ethnic group. And when that happens, because they feel threatened or whatever it is you want to think, and when you know Barack Obama says they feel threatened about their guns and their religion and stuff like that, then you move into 2016 and they feel literally threatened um, by whatever is going on. And then they then they vote on mass as a as a group. And you know what? They're way more of them than <laughs> other people. So you know, you generate majority white consciousness and then you reap the whirlwind. And that's something that could really happen over the next couple of years. And it is kind of the story if we have parallels and analogs to the 60s and what's going on now, it is the story of the Nixon years, which is to say Nixon, again, if if we just say Biden sneaks in, not that, not that Trump is Nixon, but that Biden, this is the, you know, Humphrey, uh, the Humphrey Nixon election, and Humphrey wins. And Humphrey starts kind of like agreeing and assenting to stuff that goes on on the radical, you know, on the radical leftist fringe. And, uh, the very same people who gave Nixon a sixty-two percent vote in nineteen sixty in nineteen seventy-two, after uh, giving him forty-three percent in nineteen sixty-eight, it's not that they're all d- distributed in the same way or that there are the same numbers. But those, you think those people won't have the uh, wherewithal to come out and say? the country that you are portraying us as is not a country that I live in and it's not a country that I want to live in and we are taking it back from you. That's a, that's a real thing. And, and, you know, obviously that's the threat of a Biden victory. If he is this empty shell that we all fear that he is, and that he even kind of, portrays himself as, you know, I was listening to, uh, the really great national reviews editors uh, podcast this morning and they went into a long this uh, is a second or third time. They're, they're much, they're much more in the, there's something wrong with Biden. There's something cognitively wrong with Biden camp than I am. But the fact that he calls these day, these lids, these, uh, we're not going to, uh, there's no, nothing Media coming lids. out of us all day. Uh, he's done it three times in the last week. And he did it. I think yesterday, maybe this morning. Like, and and so it's like it's eight thirty in the morning. Sorry, go home. Like, you know, it's like there's no work today at the hiring hall. Go home, media. We're not. The guy is running for president. Now, granted, he's not having rallies. He's not doing this. He's not doing that. But he could do interviews. He could have roundtable. He could. He could. He could be campaigning all day from his basement. But they're deliberately not doing that. And, you know, uh, they are raising the empty shell specter. Um, and I don't know what the, what the consequences of that are. Now, if he's doing debate prep, and he's just, you know, boning up, boning up, boning up, getting ready for next uh, Tuesday, uh, and also doesn't really want to talk about anything right now. He doesn't want to talk about the Supreme Court nomination. He but he has
3: yeah. to. He has to talk. Why does he? Why? Because if he wins, it will be the court he's dealing with, right? I mean, and and everybody cares. Well, not everybody, but it is the story right now. I, for me, I, he doesn't have to get into the weeds about how the Senate should conduct their business, even though he himself was a senator for most of his career. What he does need to do, look, his party is saying two things that he must address, one that they're going to burn it all down if they don't get their way and two that they're going to pack the court even if you know he wins as a kind of retaliatory strike those are two pretty dramatic things and if you switch the parties and these were right wingers saying this sort of stuff and Trump said nothing which he has done right this was the this is always the the criticism of Trump is that he doesn't address these kind of extreme statements or extreme uh, goals of his own, uh, on his own side. How is it that, and it's not, he, he hasn't even deputized Kamala Harris to do it. She was also asked this question. She completely ignored it. I I don't see how they get to ignore it. I mean, I guess, as you say, if it's their strategy, it's their strategy, but, but it's frustrating. It's. But there's not even a nominee right now, which
2: by the way, renders it a little sordid that you have so many Republicans saying, I will support the nominee, You know, you eventually have to find out who this person is, but how, what, what are they supposed to say besides what, this is a meteor headed for earth. There's nothing they can do about it. Their base is in the anger stage. Yeah, there's a long way for them to go, but all they can do is exacerbate
3: tensions.
2: Toward no particular end.
3: So you're saying that if they even told their own base to stop, you know, saying things like we're going to burn it all down, which has been repeatedly said by fairly prominent people on the left, even saying that they don't get any political advantage from telling them to calm down right now? Once there is a nominee and you can personalize this and you
2: have actually something of substance to talk about, then they're going to talk about it. They're not going to ignore this confirmation fight. But there's nothing to say right now. Um.
0: So here's what is being said, not by Biden, but by the liberal intelligentsia, as far as I can tell. Big piece by Bart Gelman uh, in the Atlantic. Uh, Trump is uh, the Trump and Republicans are laying out a systemic plan to steal the election after the election. Uh, Gelman claims he has sources in Republican parties that are like they're coming up with schemata to appoint electors and do this and do that and do the other thing so that uh, in the event of no, no clear result on election day or the day after election day, uh, they will be arranging things to steal the election for, and that's the end of our democracy, blah, 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 blah. So um, once again, having created a circumstance in which they actively have spent a year promoting the notion that people should vote by mail, they are now freaked out at the fact that a vote by mail is going to mean that there will be no result. uh, And that this thing that they themselves have largely generated through massive publicity for this idea. And now this terror that these vote by these votes by mail uh, on a mass scale are going to be mishandled by the voters themselves who will not cast them correctly. And will therefore, as I saw the word used, will be disenfranchised by the process. Disenfranchised, as these people are going to vote, they're choosing to vote by mail, they're going to get this envelope, they're going to put a ballot in the envelope and mail it in, and they will have executed the ballot incorrectly. And this is now being referred to as disenfranchisement, which is a conscious action to prevent someone from voting, by the way. If we start hearing this verb being used, or this, this, you know, this use of the term disenfranchised,
3: Stacey Abrams' approach, yeah,
0: right, which is to say, people are choosing to vote in a certain way and they screw it up, and it's the fault of the system that the people who want them to vote this way put in place. It's not the butterfly ballot. It's not some, you know, it is a thing to prevent voter fraud that people are supposed to put an envelope of, with a ballot inside another envelope, the secrecy envelope, and then put that envelope inside another envelope that they then sign to validate the ballot and then mail it in, which I understand, by the way, is a laborious and confusing process, which is why people shouldn't be promoting vote-by-mail so heavily because it's too complicated
3: and don't they also in some jurisdictions have to drop that ballot in a at a particular place i know in right. D.C., it's not you just you don't just drop it in any mail like you actually have to then go and find a particular place to, to drop your ballot in right right well in then some then, jurisdictions. Right.
0: well i mean voting by mail means you can vote by mail so i don't think you i think you can put a vote by mail in any mailbox by definition if you're voting absentee or voting early, or something like that, you have to put it in a. I don't, don't ask me. I don't know. It's, it's all very complicated. But what I'm seeing is they have, Democrats and liberals have radically altered the landscape of voting in the United States. They have confused it in an effort to overcome a barrier they either believe or want to believe or are claiming to believe is benefiting Republicans and they are now scaring themselves to death that this that this thing that they have done is going to leave an opening for somebody else to steal the election from them including that people are t- and watch for this cuz this is the big thing when they say that these Pennsylvania ballots are are at will you know invalidated results because they won't have had the right envelopes are an act of disenfranchisement. Then there are going to be lawsuits that those ballots should be counted anyway because they represent the will of the voter. Remember from 2000 in Florida, the whole thing was, the reason they were looking at the hanging chads was to determine the actual will of the voter we're not supposed to be reading the minds of the will of a voter. That's it's a ballot. It's either it's either yes or no. It's a vote for this guy or that guy. And if well, you and screw it, up and you pull the wrong lever,
3: it's on you. Well, and I was going to say it can be very complicated to vote in person too, depending on the ballot. And that's why most jurisdictions do mail to to voters, uh, a sample ballot. So you can sort of see like all the initiatives locally that you have to vote on all the other, you know, the non presidential election stuff. So you you're supposed to educate yourself. It is part of the duty and responsibility as a citizen to go into the ballot box or to sit there with your mail in ballot and have some idea of what you're doing. If you can't do that, then you're not being disenfranchised. You're just not uh, fulfilling your responsibilities and duties as a citizen. And I know that sounds probably harsh, but it, it infuriates me when, I mean, the whole hanging Chad thing was so interesting because it really was, you know, people trying to divine the will of someone who couldn't figure out how to punch a hole in a ballot. And I, I tend to fall on the side of, if you don't know how to do this correctly, and those ballots actually were badly designed, but in this election, if you cannot sit down and figure out how to navigate a ballot, seal it up and send it in... That means you haven't taken the responsibilities of citizenship seriously. Here's
2: what's starting to happen. And this is something that we anticipated happening a long time ago. And it's only now beginning. People are like Derek Thompson at the Atlantic are saying, look, the safety of in-person voting in other countries like Korea is completely founded. And there are a whole lot of issues with mailed in ballots. And Democrats need to abandon this mail in thing because it's totally safe to go vote. And now you have this piece in the Washington Post today, big piece, big study about how opening schools, primary education schools, has not produced any outbreaks yet. And in fact, transmission is really pretty difficult in these environments. You don't even have teachers coming down with this thing. So it might be a lot safer than we thought. All this data was available to them months ago. This is not a new conclusion. It's a conclusion Republicans and Republican districts reached a long time ago, and they have geared their lives to around this data and now enjoy systemic advantages when it comes to reopening society, when it comes to voting, when it comes to having a a better quality of life in these states that are open. Um, And Democrats are all suddenly starting to realize that the pieties of the pandemic have put them behind the eight ball. And we're all just kind of agreeing to let go of them. Uh, we're not, not agreeing that the yet. Virus has passed. No, 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 they're not there yet. We're not agreeing yet. They're I
0: just starting. saw this morning on the Today Show that you know Miami Dade, I think, announced that it was going to open its schools in Florida, uh, October fourth or something like that. And Broward County, the teachers are all up in arms because they're going to die, and they're all going to die. And you know, here in New York, there are still protests that teachers are going to die from schools. And so, I, I you know, uh, no one's agreed on anything. Well, oh, if you could
2: have is, a vaccine and these people would still be saying, we're not going back to schools. I know. Because it's not tethered to the data.
0: Well, of course it's not tethered to the data. They they apparently would prefer to stay home instead of going to their place of employment, which I don't, you know, if you've ever seen an inner city, New York City school in 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 Brooklyn, you would understand why you might want to stay at home in Nassau County rather than come in to teach there. um, But I'm just saying that uh, your presumption is that there's now, there's this shift where a rational uh, elite public opinion is now saying it's okay to teach. And you know, you know what people aren't getting the virus the way they used to and all that. I don't see all that much evidence of that. All I keep reading about it is how the second outbreak is coming and there's been this, you know, tiny uptick in the last couple of days in the uh, percentage rate of, um, of 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 virus cases uh my friend david uh, bonson uh who does the COVID and markets newsletter says this increase national increase is entirely due to reporting changes in texas and arizona which you know these as our really really good piece by matt shapiro uh, in the magazine uh, details about the reporting on the coronavirus these state health departments and boards and all this are 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 function, trying to make sure they get accurate numbers and they keep revising their numbers in various ways to make them more accurate and more reflective of the of the reality because they've never had to do anything remotely like this before and they don't really know how and they haven't had, their reporting has been problematic for months and that's why you get these jumps in the death rate when it turns out that they are adding deaths two months ago. But they add them two months later, and then somehow that tally both goes back and present in time. Mm-hmm. And so, I'm not seeing any evidence that there's a more rational framework going on. Not about the about and the election. I'm saying they they have the Trump era. I mean, we said this yesterday. They they're driving themselves insane. They're dri- and they think that Trump is driving, and Trump is driving us insane. But I mean, they think that the Republicans are all insane, power hungry, grabbing, and watching them in real time when you are not one of them wrestle through the implications of everything that they've been arguing for the last two or three years and how it happens. Look at look at Bob Mueller, Robert Mueller, the great hero of uh, you know, remember he was a war hero and a Purple Heart and a blue a blue diamond and I don't know what the hell he was and the most. Upstanding, wonderful person who ever lived and blah, blah, blah. And now Andrew Weissman has written a book saying Mueller was too afraid of Trump to really, really investigate him. So we get two years of of Mueller being burnished like he was Michelangelo's David. And now here we are in 2020 and his deputy has written a book saying he was a sissy. He was a sissy and a wimp. And he likes coffee with sugar-free rum-free hazelnut uh, you know inter you know general mills international foods milk in it so you know that he's an idiot I mean you know all they do all they do is they they push something up and then it goes the wrong way and then they go ape and it's that and you know November 4th is going to be one of the worst days in American history I'm guessing, because the entire, every television network, every major media institution, except for Fox, I imagine, and a couple, are going to be in a state
3: of nervous
0: collapse.
3: Okay, but here's where I'm going to be the optimist in this scenario, because I have a lot more faith in the average American who is already this is actually where the skepticism of the media as an institution is a positive because they're not they are sick and tired of a lot of that sort of the, the back and forth that you described so well, John. And I do think that there's going to be more patience and more pragmatism after election, after the election day polls close. Um, we saw it in Florida in 2000. I mean, there weren't there wasn't rioting. There were lawsuits. I mean, I, I do have faith that we're going to be able to get through this moment as a country, because I trust in the average person a lot more than I trust our elites on either side and hell of a lot more than I trust the media. So the same has been
2: said about RBG. You know, everybody was saying for years, everybody, a lot of people whom we follow and who follow politics obsessively have been saying, you know, she was the, the sinew that is holding this country together. And when she's gone, we're going to tear each other apart because the equilibrium will have been destroyed. And that was such a pathologically um, uh, hostile view towards America, towards the country, towards these people, and also doesn't allow for apathy. Like I've been saying forever, most of the country doesn't care about politics, doesn't vote, cannot be bothered, is annoyed when you bring it up. So the notion here that this country will tear itself apart over an, an election that takes a couple of days to count it is really just, it, it's it's deliberately avoiding a sanguine view of this country that all evidence suggests we should we should adopt. I
1: really don't agree. I, I would like to agree, but I don't agree because when it comes to the country tearing itself apart, we're not in the hands of the average voter or of the apathetic. It is the, 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 shockingly large number, although not a majority, of activist Americans, uh, and particularly the, the ones in um, high-profile positions who will actively be tearing the country apart.
2: You know, there will most certainly be that, and there will most certainly be violence, I, I, regardless of the outcome. We've seen too much of it over the last four years to say it's not going to happen. But the notion that they'll take a sledgehammer to the foundations of the Republican successfully uh, establish some sort of conditions that would constitute—I don't know—a threat to its stability—seems unfounded to me. I hope you're right. right. Uh,
0: I very much hope you're right. Um, but I'm—I'm I'm really not talking about the average. I really am talking here about a media, uh, an outbreak of media hysteria that will have consequences. That's guaranteed. Yes. I mean. <laughs> Unless, you know, unless unless uh, Trump wins by 10 or Biden wins by 10. I mean, that, you know, uh, unless the decision desks look at the numbers and look at the number of mail-in ballots and say the mail-in ballots can't possibly generate enough votes to, you know, to win, uh, to, to get back. It's funny, um, somebody posted a p- picture uh, the other day uh, of 1988 when uh, the election night, Bush Dukakis, and they... Um, They come on the air with the special report at 8 p.m. on CBS News, and it's like 8:04, and you know the the first polls have already closed, something like that. And they put up the first numbers, and it was like Bush 170, Dukakis three, or something like that. You know, I mean, it was like 8:04, and it was all over, you know, at 8:04. And of course, you know, the funny thing is, 2016 was. Oddly similar, in a way, because the minute that Trump won Florida, which was, I think, the first state to be called, uh, or the first, like the first contested state to be called, it was clear that something very big was going on that was unexpected. Because there had been all that talk in the previous week about, oh my God, look at the early vote. The early vote is coming in for Hill. So so much early vote. Oh Who boy. The early vote, and then basically just Trump blew Hillary out on you know on election day, uh, and 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 won. And you know, I mean, maybe this year of panic about mail-in vote, maybe there'll be there'll be less of it. There'll be more in-person voting, and the in-person voting will be will not be as heavily tr- Trumpian in some of these places as people think. And then, you know, it'll all be over, you know, uh, relatively early. Or conversely, this wild hidden vote for Trump will come out on a leg and just swamp everything in the three states. And then basically, you know, uh, it won't necessarily be a call, but it'll look like Trump is going to win. I don't know. Um, I I do want to conclude by echoing something that Christine talked about, because there was this picture yesterday of this trump rally in pennsylvania this mass rally which is very impressive looking rallies don't mean anything it's a mistake to think rallies mean anything romney was getting eighty thousand people to turn out at rallies in the week before 2012 and a lot of people were like oh my god look at this he's obviously going to win and they lost by four right i mean it was he wasn't going to win but you know i will
2: never forgive that pennsylvania parking garage um
0: and It it
2: still traumatized me
0: so um the uh, the but it's very impressive, and so there's all these Trump people out at a rally. And on the media, it's like Trump's killing a million people. It's like Republicans are not basically this Republicans can't gather, Democrats, liberals, and Democrats can gather on a bridge in Portland, and it's not going to kill anybody. But apparently, Republicans are uncommonly able to transmit covid to each other.
3: <laughs> no, in DC they can literally uh, liberals can literally have a go-go maskless dance party in the streets while the Republican National Convention is happening a few blocks away and it is the convention that is a super spreader event and the go-go party is perfectly right. fine.
0: <laughs> right. So let me just say to hell with all you people. That's what I'm saying. Like enough enough with your pious intonations about the dangers of events that you yourself aren't even going to. You know, these are all, adult. let me put it this way, not to be too horrible about this, but these are all adults and they're all going to this thing. And if they poison, if they get each other sick and die, it's on them. And then if they kill other people, it's, they're, they're at fault. I'm not at fault. You're not at fault. They're at fault. And so that was true of the Black Lives Matter thing and all of this. That's what it means to be an adult. So I, I'm sorry. I'm a terrible person, and I just said something awful, and there it is. So you can, you know, come come at me with a two-by-four. With that, we will call a halt to these proceedings before they go entirely off the rails. Maybe they just went off the rails a minute ago. I don't know. Um, so for Abe, Christine, and Noah,
1: I'm John Podhoritz, Keep the candle burning.